history and future of energy efficiency in Europe. Interview with Rod Jansen, episode 22. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. On this episode, we speak with Rod Jansen, a longtime expert who began his career after the oil crisis of the 1970s. Rod may have decades of experience, but he is still young and stays active with the latest research and policy developments in energy efficiency. He's still doing it. I wanted to have Rod on to discuss both the recent history around energy efficiency and whether EU policymaking is making an impact. As you'll hear, we are a bit critical of the EU, but we give credit where it's due. There are a number of terms that will probably be new to the listener, and not everyone may know them. The first is USAID. This is the United States Agency for International Development. It sounds like an organization for Africa, which it is, but it was active in Eastern Europe and still is non-EU member states. After countries in the former Soviet Union joined the EU, USAID moved on, thinking the EU would assist in development. We discussed the ACQUI, which is the body of common rights and obligations that are binding on all EU countries. Uh, what's interesting about this is that there was a time when the former communist countries working to join the EU transformed their economies and legislation so they could be good EU members. They tr- did a tremendous amount of good in revamping public administration and shifting economies onto a market footing. Rod and I discuss these topics and we also cover how energy efficiency policymaking has changed in the EU and where is it going. That 2050 goal is enough being done. Rod has an opinion. Community engagement? We discuss this too. Finally, I want to say thank you for listening to the My Energy 2050 podcast. As you'll note, we are re-ramping up our episodes and getting them out almost weekly. We are in a constant state of development, and the next few months will be exciting, so stay tuned. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. If you enjoy this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. And now for this week's episode. Uh, Rod, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Mike, thank you very much. It's good to see you again after all these years. It's great. You know, yeah, so, I, I I'm actually so just, happy to be with you. I just thought we've known each other for 10 years. Yeah, wow. So this yeah. is, I'm, I'm really happy. And thank you for making the time, uh, sincerely. I'm glad to, to do it. Come today. Um, so I, I wanted to actually... I just read your bio, but I don't think it's uh, so accurate. I was wondering, maybe you could just tell us about your your background a bit more. Um, and, and basically, which I don't know the answer to, what is your education in? Well, I, I have a master's degree in international relations. And the international relations actually t- dealt with the, the nickel industry. This sounds crazy. And so I, I soon after, after graduate school, I joined the Canadian government because that was the big thing. We had Pierre Elliott Trudeau as our prime minister. Everybody wanted to join the administration unless you were going into the private sector. So I joined what was called Energy Mines and Resources, but I was in minerals. Well, my boss said, this is no future here. And we're setting up the Office of Energy Conservation. And my good friend, David, is in charge of it. And says, so he says, I think you should go there. You know? 
So I, I get interviewed. And so I was, I moved, I became the 39th person to work in the office of energy conservation. Remember, this is after the first oil crisis. So, I mean, this is what, what year this was in 1976. Okay. okay. I, I don't want to date you too much, but you brought up the oil crisis and Trudeau isn't the present prime minister of Canada his son? That's his son now, okay. who's, his, who's the, the prime minister, the current prime minister. So it was actually quite exciting time because we were part of trying to solve the oil crisis. Then we, we in 79, I guess, we came into the second oil crisis and we were setting up offices all across the country. We were doing all sorts of things in terms of, of fuel substitution, energy efficiency, renewables, I mean, everything to, to, to battle the the uh, the crisis. Now, the, the interesting thing at that time, my boss and a couple of the other people in the office were going regularly to Paris to uh, the International Energy Agency, which had been founded during the first oil crisis. So, and I knew all these people were going there. And so I got married in 1981 and my wife was a, she had worked in the energy ministry, but wanted to get out of the government. So she actually became a journalist and she went with uh, Pierre Trudeau in 1982 to the G7 meeting in Paris, in Versailles. And she, she comes back saying, she was working in Montreal and I was working in Ottawa. She comes back saying, wouldn't Paris be a nice place to live? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so I go to the, the, what was called the Public Service Commission saying, is there any chance for me to get a job in Paris at the OECD or the International Energy Agency? And they say, we're looking for Canadians, okay? We're really hungry. Now, my wife was working for United Press International. So uh -huh. after I get a positive thing from the government, we go to New York to the head office of United Press International saying, my husband has a chance for a job in Paris. What about a chance for me? Well, to cut a, a story short, she started November 1st working for United Press International. I didn't have anything at that point. I came over a couple of weeks later, had an interview at the IEA and was hired. Wow. So, and so I started, I went back to the Canada for a couple of weeks or whatever. And I started on uh, March 1st, 1983 to work in the energy efficiency unit. Oh, so we'll blame your wife for all this. So we'll, we'll blame my wife. Well, <laughs> We blame each other for all of these things. But the, the thing is that what happened was in, I mean, you could only stay in the IEA for five years. Mm. And so the thing was in 1988, neither one of us wanted to leave Canada or leave for Canada. To, you know, we wanted to stay in Paris. We had fallen in love with not just Paris, but Europe as a whole. Yeah. So in 1988, I started as a consultant and and I, my first job was actually for two years developing an industrial energy strategy in Turkey. Wow. And then I worked on, on projects. I was working for a French consulting company that needed people who could speak English. And, you know, I could, I could do both. I mean, I was, my French <laughs> yes. wasn't great, but it was fine. Uh -huh. And then the, the wall came down and then my whole life changed. I worked in Armenia I worked in Romania, you know, I worked in Hungary a lot, you know, and so, yes. I mean, I really built up quite an expertise working in, in, in Eastern Europe. And uh, I mean, you're in, in Budapest. I must have gone to Budapest and chaired meetings and did things four or five times wow. in, in the 90s. Uh, 
And then, and then it was completely different. Yeah. It was completely different. But there, there were some really good people around. You know, I mean, this was, I mean, they were not guaranteed getting into the EU at that time. I mean, they were obviously trying to get in. I probably, I spent a lot more time in Romania. And, uh, but the other crazy thing that happened to me was that DG, what, well, let's just call DG Energy in the European Commission was really tiny. There was only like three people working on energy efficiency. Mm-hmm. And so they hired me as a consultant basically throughout the whole 1990s for one or two days a week. And there was the big advantage of being a Canadian. I, I had worked at the IEA, so I knew all of the member states. I knew everything that was going on. Right. And I had a good network of people. But the real, be- the real benefit was that... I wasn't from one of the countries. It wasn't from an EU country. The fact that I was Canadian meant I wasn't defending the French position or the Dutch position or the British position or the Irish. And so that I would come in like you would do at the IEA and look at the problem and try to find what's the right solution and not say, oh, it has to be the Dutch solution or it has to be the French solution. You are really an independent consultant. I was really, in the truest sense, an independent consultant. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, and I, I, I mean, I was going, oh, we had the train ride up to Brussels in those days was four hours, practically, you know, now it's an hour and 10, an hour and 20 minutes. Wow. But uh, in those days, it was, it was, it was crazy. But, but again, it, it got me into the whole EU wide uh, scene. Yeah, yeah. And as things were changing, <clears throat> pre, pre ascension, and then post. Exactly. Uh, Exactly. Post period there, and then so so you've been able to see how things have changed. So maybe maybe we'll just uh, do from eighty nine ninety forward, uh, and and you can describe how how has energy efficiency, I would say, policies or even just the thinking. This is just the, kind of like a big macro question. How how has that changed in what is now the EU? How has that changed over over well, the it's, decades? It's 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 funny how it's changed because in in the late 1980s, energy efficiency was used to deal with acid rain. It sounds crazy, but but it, it was the, it was the Dutch government who actually came up with the first strategy in 1990, linking energy improved energy efficiency with climate. The the the, the climate issue was already coming in at that time, and so uh, they they had their. It's, it's a wonderful study if anybody wants to go back to it. I can't think of the name of it right now, but I, I, it's, so between the Dutch government and also the, 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 the Danish government, they really led the, the linkage with, with climate mm-hmm. uh, very much so. And so what the European Commission came out with the, the, what's called the SAVE Directive and in, in 1993, and they had about 12 or 13 uh, requirements for member states to do, but they were very soft, very soft. I mean, it was just basically to get people thinking in the right direction. The, the thing is, energy efficiency was sort of so-so at that point, because in 1986, I have to go back to 86 a little mm-hmm. bit, the, the oil price collapsed. So nobody cared about energy efficiency. And, and so you couldn't, you couldn't deal with it on... On terms in terms of energy policy, and so mm-hmm. with this with this climate issue, there was a lot more 
climate-related issues related to that. So to implement this, it was uh, this directive in 1993, this is when they started doing these projects, which are now called Horizon 2020 or Horizon Energy Mm -hmm. uh, or Horizon Europe. And Mm -hmm. so they started having projects that were, in those days, two or three countries getting together and, and, and a common project. They also helped set up regional offices, uh, co- co-funded with local authorities or regional administrations or whatever. So this was already happening. The renewables people were already farther advanced. The renewables was probably more still at the research stage. Okay. And uh, in, instead of the implementation stage, both renewables and energy efficiency had very, very soft targets. This is the 1990s? Yeah, the early 1990s. And okay. in, in the European Union, well, it wasn't called the European Union then, but anyway, yeah. the thing was, they had a target for 1995, but it was an energy intensity target. So that didn't mean that, so you could lower the, they were trying to lower the intensity by 1% per year while nobody came anywhere close to that. Wow. It it just wasn't, it just wasn't happening. Uh But at the same time, so in parallel with doing the stuff in Brussels, I I get involved with a lot of projects in, in Eastern Europe and, and, there was a big gas study done in, in Hungary. And so I chaired a meeting, you know, looking nice. how they were going to widen the, 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 the use of natural gas in the, and, and district heating in, in, in Hungary. At the same time, I'm working in Romania. We, we, we had a, an energy cities project. I think we were working in five or six cities. This was in 1998, 1999. Okay. And these cities, I mean, they, the largest one, we didn't do Bucharest. The largest one was maybe 100,000 people. The people were just wonderful to work with. They were, they were just sponges. They just wanted, but they wanted to belong to the EU so badly. They really wanted to feel part of Europe. And, and it, was, it, was, it was really good. I mean, it was, we, and we were in all different parts of the country and it was, it, it, it was tremendous. And I, I still have some very good friends from that period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at that period, I mean, I came to Hungary in 98 for a bit. And exactly, right? People really wanted to join the EU that where they knew that that was going to be something they wanted to do in the future. And there was a lot of change, right? Dramatic dramatic change that, exactly. that, and the professionalization of, I would say, state administration was occurring uh, during that time as well. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, how, so, so there was this period where, yeah, uh, before the countries joined the EU, because they, there was the a, a key, right? Well, there was the a key that had, was coming up, but see the key was changing because these directives were changing. Uh, 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 as I said, there's 9370, there's this directive in 1993, and it, it basically stated that there was, a, there was a new energy efficiency policy strategy that came out in 98 or 99, and then another one a couple of years later. We did, I did two evaluations of that directive. I, together with a couple of others, we did some evaluations of what was the, the whole SAVE program. What was interesting about this was that it was getting people from all of the countries to work together. One of the big changes was in 1995 when Finland, Austria, and Sweden joined. 
Because up until then, a lot of the projects were done in either German or in France. When I, when I went to Romania in 1994 to help write a new energy efficiency law, they were working with the French energy agency, ADEM, and it was, they were working completely in French. In those days, uh, Romanians, their second language was French. Mm. Now it's, it's English, everything. But in 1995, what happened was when the three new member states came, they really didn't have a tradition of French. So basically, the commission said all projects have to be done in English from now wow. on. Everything, okay? Uh-huh. doesn't matter which country, it has to be done in English. And that changed everything. I mean, even the French consulting companies I was working with, all of those guys now are very fluent in English. Everybody had to be fluent in English. It wasn't so bad for the Germans. They were, they were much better. It was a bit tough for the Spaniards and the Italians. But, uh, but now, I mean, everything is done in English now. So, I mean, it's, it, it was really quite funny. But, I mean, this also gave a, an advantage to some of the new Eastern, uh, w- which when they joined in 2004. Mm-hmm. And uh, the key. What happened? It, the the Ikean energy efficiency was quite simple because there was only a buildings directive from 2002. And so member states were implementing it at the same time as all you, we had all of these new member states. So they were basically all doing it together. And, and the bar wasn't so high. Was the it? bar wasn't so high at all. Uh-huh. No, uh-huh. no. Because fact, guess, on the generation side, electricity distribution or gas distribution, they had to, they had to reorganize everything. But exactly. And so that was much more complicated mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. on, on, on the, the more traditional fuels and on the grid. I mean, that, 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 was, that was where most of the work was. But I worked in, in Bulgaria in 1995 and uh, doing an evaluation for the commission. And it, it was just full of Danes there because they were, do, they were doing consulting on district heating. Oh right, okay. bringing in their experience, and and also at the same and also at the same time we had the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development created, and it was promoting two different things. One was district heating because most a lot of those countries did have district heating schemes. So here was to try and you know retrofit the boiler or the the distribution system or whatever. The second thing was to was the. the the European Bank, the EBRD, was creating ESCOs, Europe Energy mm-hmm. Service Companies. So they put a lot of effort into that. In fact, your country in Hungary, uh, back in the late 90s, had probably more ESCOs than all of Europe put together. I mean, it wow. was, yeah. I mean, it was amazing how many, I mean, they failed, you know. I mean, I got, a, I got together <laughs> with a couple of uh, Romanians to set up one. And uh, in fact, we set up one with the president of the, the National Electric Utility and, and also a professor. And now, how did the business do? Not that well. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, mean, I mean, everything is a bunch of experimenting, you know, and everybody yes. wanted it to succeed so badly. Poland was doing quite well. Hungary, actually. But Hungary, it had a lot of connections with the West anyway. Yeah. And very entrepreneurial anyways. Um we're exactly. I mean, it was it was probably tougher for Bulgaria and Romania. Well, they were so far further. I'll just say further down, right? In yeah. in just uh, they needed to do so much more to catch up. Well, they still do. I mean, yeah, I worked. Still, yeah. I mean, in like in twenty nineteen, I worked in Romania helping them develop their long term renovation strategy, and oh. they're they still, you know they still lack capacity inside the administration. That's where they need help. 
There's some wonderful people at the city level, the yeah. local level. There's some wonderful NGOs. There's some, you know, there's really good networks like the Oraja Energy, the Energy, uh, uh, the city network in, in Romania. There's the, the Green Building Council, probably one of the most effective ones is in Romania. And it's actually had, it was founded by an American. Wow, really? Yeah. And uh, Steve. I, I just had the thought coming in, but there's also one in Croatia. I think that was founded by an American Croatian. Yeah, it could be. And also, I think there's in uh, is it Lithuania or Latvia, one, there's, there's an American really quite involved there as well. So, but, you know, in the, in the 90s, getting back to the 90s, it was interesting because working for the European Union, we're just talking about America. I mean, USAID was yes. really big, okay? In fact, the, the one guy who I said was an, the professor who I was involved with in setting up this ESCO in, in Romania, he actually went and left the university and went and worked for USAID for several years. Yeah, I worked on a few USAID projects between 2006 and I don't know 2011 or so, yeah. and that was fantastic. That fantastic. I could travel around, interview people, just about energy. You know, it was electricity distribution, generation, this right. type of thing, privatization, and I could really see the reports and how USAID brought these different organizations together and really pushed. Like for example, the. Um, Uh, in, in, in the Balkans, the energy community and how they, they were involved in pushing that forward. And well, then the energy community is fantastic. You know? So, yeah, yeah. So, but you know, let's see if the, the U S gets, gets back involved now. I, I wanted to maybe transition a bit about um, you, you have exactly right. This experience in Europe, uh, even as a Canadian, But, but how, how do you see things developing based on your experience from the past? I'll just say few, I won't say few decades, but I'll just say past few years of your experience in Europe. And then if we're looking towards 2050, um, you know, and this goal, I'll just say very simply uh, kind of this net zero carbon by 2050. Mm -hmm. I, won't, I won't get into the details of what that actually means. But how do, you, how do you see Europe going forward and meeting these targets and, and, and in what they're doing and their plans? Yeah, they've learned an awful lot over the, the last two decades, okay? So, so, since there's a real disconnect, though. There's, there's, there's some lovely, great new tools that are there. The policies are tremendous. But I, I mentioned working for the long-term renovation strategy in Romania. Still half of, this was due in March 2020, okay? So 15 months ago, still half the member states haven't submitted them. Mm -hmm. There's still a lack of priority at the, at the, at the, the national level. And I don't know how we get around that. And, and the thing is, we're, we're boosting the our level of ambition in terms of emissions reduction because of energy efficiency or whatever you know so we were ramping that up to try and meet our uh, paris target and and the 2050 net zero whatever that means yes but so we're, we're very good at, at that but in terms of the implementation We're, we're falling behind now for the renewables directive the energy efficiency directive and the buildings directive Smartly, they created what's called concerted action. So they actually have these, these, these committees 
of experts from all the member states to, to, to share their experience. If they've got a problem, can somebody, maybe Denmark's done the right thing and that can help Bulgaria or, or vice versa. I mean, and, and so, they, so they discuss how to implement. But that's at the working level. We still need at the policy level, at the higher level inside member states, we're not getting that level of commitment. And often it's not the minister, often it's the senior person inside the, the senior bureaucrat. And just going back to Romania, for example, the, the ministry responsible for the renovation of buildings, uh, there are five people, they should have 50 people, maybe uh -huh. 150 people. They, uh -huh. they just don't have the capacity, you know? And so they, they, they don't realize the data that, that they should be collecting. And uh, uh, to be fair to them, they don't have the money. And, yeah. and so they do need help. And, and uh, amazingly enough, in Romania, when I was there in 2019, who was helping them? Was it, was it Brussels? No. They were getting help from the World Bank. They were getting technical assistance. I thought the World Bank had left. Yeah, but no, they—they're big. They've got a huge office in Bucharest, for example. So there's a lot of work going on. That the thing is that uh, I'll just give one example, and I keep using it all the time. Right now, the energy commissioner announced last year the renovation wave that we we need to renovate 35 million buildings by 2030, and not just renovate the small, very ambitious renovation. That comes down to 3.5 million buildings a year. We're, we're, we're floundering. <laughs> Rod, Rod, let me interrupt. I'm sitting in my flat in Budapest. And let me tell you, I'll tell you about my neighbors. I mean, I live in Buda, right? It's, it's nice, okay. but no one's renovating around here. No, no, no one has that money. No. Uh -uh. But, but also there, the thing is that they're, I, there's this one expert, Yamina Saheb, who has written about the need for an industrialization of renovation. We ha we've had some small experiments led by the Dutch, this called Energy Sprong. They've been mainly doing it for social housing. But in terms of actually trying to figure out how do we do 3.5 million buildings a year in 27 countries, mm -hmm. it just hasn't been proper. There's, there, should, there should be working groups working night and day to try and figure this out. Working with academics, working with with the the actual trades industries, whether it's insulation or controls or whatever, we it's and so it's it's great. You go to Brussels and it's a lot of blah blah blah, a lot of talk, yes, and, yes. and a lot of fine words about it. But it, I, I go back to if, if if countries like Romania haven't even sent in their long-term renovation strategy, the renovation strategy should tell you how they should get their buildings done. Yes, you know? yes. And, and, and we should have that from 27 countries and that should add up to 3.5 million a year. But do you, do you think, because, I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, we, I'm glad we talked about USAID and their involvement. I really know their involvement from the regulatory side yeah. and working with energy regulators and really hands-on training uh, uh, and every, being ERA, the Energy Regulators Regional Association. So it's hands-on. And, and I just feel like with the EU, the approach is, yeah, hands-off and they leave it up to member states to decide. They kind of give them the money but the implementation is still member states and they're not this, doing enough. But this, but this is the mentality when they were only six co countries or 12 countries 
they basically left it to the Dutch or to the Dane or to those countries. We, we ran into a totally different situation in 2004. We ended up adding more member states. And then in 2007, when we added Bulgaria and Romania, mm-hmm. then it should, it should have, they should have taken a different position. But I do, don't do, know do, legally do, what, what stops them, okay? Yeah, but do you think it's the kind of the approach from the commission or parliament? I mean, we won't go into rule of law, right? But 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 this type of uh, direct engagement with communities, and I think it's even written in actually the Green Deal, kind of the outline of this, the direct community engagement. Uh, do, you, do you think they kind of get it or these are just kind of... Well, it's interesting you talk about direct community engagement because there's probably happening much more at the local level. Uh, mm-hmm. and at the regional level. I mean, there's some, there's, there's, there's a smart cities platform. In fact, they're, they're going to have a marketplace meeting next week and things like that. So there's more happening there. It, there's what's called the energy uh, agency, net, ENR network, okay? It's, it's the network of national energy agencies, which the French agency, all of them. And... Uh, they are. They were sort of in slumber for quite a long time. They're now. They're now becoming much more active. They had working groups on buildings, on industry, on transport. Those start. They seem to be coming back to life again. Mm-hmm. So I'm. 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 I'm a little bit more hopeful. Also, the thing is, what we've had because of the pandemic, we have these new recovery and resilience plans. And there's going to be a lot of money, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, compared to, you know, the 750 billion euros. And so member states are having to come up with their plans. And, and a certain percentage of that is supposed to be green for green projects, okay? So, so we, but again, it still goes back. Because of subsidiarity, it's still, you still leave it to the Italians to decide what they need best for their country or Romania or Ireland or whatever. So you still, I mean, you know, this, we are not one country. This is a, this is still a confederation no, of a sort. And but so Rod, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I have a very critical opinion, uh, <laughs> but, and you don't need to go there, but then let me ask, because uh, my, my opinion is I feel like that money's lost and it doesn't go to the energy efficiency I don't know. It doesn't go to buildings where people are living. Let's say it that way. Do you, do you feel similar or? Too much of that happens. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and I was talking to people, there's just current, currently right now, we have regional and cohesion funds in DG Regio. And I was, I was quite talking to the person in, in DG Regio in Brussels, in the European commission who handles uh, buildings for Romania, for example, and he, it's just a struggle dealing with the civil servants, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it, and this is not just Romania. This is in all of these countries. I mean, they put up a lot of barriers, you know, and unnecessarily. And again, it goes back to priority, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, the, the problem, well, I worry about right now, the flavor of the month is hydrogen. Everybody wants hydrogen, <laughs> you know? yes. But the thing is... What and hydrogen may be a solution, but we, we, we're not like Z- Zimbabwe or Malawi. 
we actually have to reduce our energy consumption per square meter mm -hmm. and our energy consumption in our SMEs and our energy intensive industries. We still waste too much. That's not the, uh, the, so, I mean, there's different strategies that have to be taken. And you, you know, when you and I were working on the modeling of, of, for buildings in different sectors, you know, around the world, you have to, you know, some, some, some regions are going to focus on new build and others are going to focus on existing buildings. Mm -hmm. Well, Europe has to focus on existing buildings. Yeah. We're only adding about 1% to the whole uh, body of, of, of buildings a year. And so our, you know, we've actually quite, got quite good policies for nearly zero energy buildings, new buildings, new. As, long as, they're, as long as they're being, the enforcement is there for the build. So our focus has to be on existing buildings. And it's, again, it's not simple. I mean, going back to Romania, the, you can't believe how many buildings still haven't been repaired from the earthquake in the late 70s. Wow. Uh, in, in Italy, the, they've got the, probably the oldest buildings in, uh, in Europe. Yeah. And they have an earthquake problem and things like that. I mean, you know, we, it's, it's not, they're, they're not simple solutions. And uh, but do, you, do, you, do you think, uh, and this was one of my other questions for you, do, do you think that uh, the work of academics, though, is coming in to help? Or do you actually, I was speaking to someone uh, involved in an energy company the other day, and they said, you know, we're just done with expert policy making now. Now it's all politics uh, involved in policy making. Do, do you feel the same way that it's just politics and policy making rather than you know kind of expertise being appreciated? And no, I, 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 exactly the opposite. I think we need the academics all the more. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, uh, next week is the European Council for an Energy Efficient Economy having a summer study. There will be nine panels on different topics: uh, building policy, building technology, uh, urban, I mean, evaluation, things like that. Uh, probably we're going to probably have 195 papers presented. Most of them are from academics and, and we're struggling with this. And I mean, we, we do this every two years for a general thing. And then every opposite year we have it just for industry. And uh, the, the problem that we have at ECEEE and, and, and we're the Europe's largest NGO supporting energy efficiency is that we don't translate that well enough for people in parliament or people in the council or the, even the European Commission. But I remember when the energy efficiency directive was being uh, negotiated or actually developed back in, two, well, when I first knew you, 2011, 2012. And I was actually working part-time for the ECEEE in Brussels. I was sort of their, their man in Brussels. I remember. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I remember going to the commission, DG Energy. In fact, the woman, dear friends, you know, she's, she's Bulgarian, but she really, really top notch. And I said, you know, Gergana, what can we do for you? And she says, can you get me copies of all the papers from this year's summer study? We, I had it on a memory stick. But I mean, like, they're not free. I mean, they're only for members for the first year. They don't become free for a few years. Oh. And, and, uh, so, I mean, with no question, I, yeah. I mean, and they, I mean, but they, were pro they provided so many valuable uh, insights and analyses and data. I mean, we, compared to what, when I was at the IA, we, we've got much more data. We don't, do we have enough? No, 
but we're, it's, things have improved that way. And also now, in, okay, I know they're not part of the European Union, but there's this group called CREDS, led by Oxford University. There's about eight or 10 universities that are working together. They're actually going to be one of the, the senior uh, partners of this summer study next uh, week because they see the value of their students. Oh. Uh, mm-hmm. pre- pre- preparing with the, we, we had an abstract selection meeting and it's quite rigorous a lot of a lot of them get rejected and so uh, it's because these are all peer-reviewed over a period of about five six months mm-hmm. and uh, so they see it for the value for their students and academics and uh, you know the the, the big Institutes in Germany, the, the Fraunhofer Institute or the Wuppertal Institute, I mean, they, they buy block tickets. They, they probably have 20, 30 of their students attending it. Yeah. Yes. So they really see the advantage of it. Unlike America, we keep going back to America, but we don't have the big national laboratories like you do in the United States. We don't have Lawrence Berkeley Lab. We don't have Oak Ridge National Lab. Yes. And, and, um, so we have to do it quite differently. And have we done always done a good job of it? No. In fact, we were just having a meeting two days ago on how do we get these messages and, and analyses to those who really need it. Now, one of the things we did was when the, the buildings director was being, in, in June, the commission will publish it's proposed change to the renewables directive, which includes heat. So that's important. And also the energy efficiency directive, which talks about energy efficiency obligations and, and covers a whole wide range of things. And then in the autumn, we'll have the, the buildings directive revised. As soon as they're published, they go to committee in the European Parliament. Oh. And what, what, what happened several years ago was that um, there was a big concern in the parliament, like, about discount rates. How do we supposed to dis, you know? And so yeah. for ECEEE, we actually paid a consulting company to help us to just give some insights to the parliamentarians on, di- on discount rates and what do they mean. We also did the same thing. The commission came out with this definition of a major renovation, and but they didn't really properly define it. Well, we hired a group within one week or maybe 10 days, we, we actually got something that we could actually give to the, the parliamentary committee. So, so the we, knowledge so we, is there, right? The knowledge yeah, is there. The, the, the knowledge is there, experience. but, you know, and you can't just leave it to the lobbyists, the people who are selling insulation or controls yeah. or whatever. And so having a neutral body like us, there's not enough of us around. You know? Yes. And, and we don't, you're, you're, you're facilitating the direct communication, yeah. the, the papers, giving them to the parliamentarians so they can see it themselves. Exactly. But there, I mean, but encouragingly, I mean, what I've been, what I've noticed over the last few years is there's a lot more really young academics getting master's degrees and PhDs that I am so impressed with, you know, yeah. and they're, they're developing new tools and, uh, and, and even dealing with big data, I mean, mm-hmm. looking at all of the energy performance certificates. I mean, most buildings get an energy performance certificate. Usually, they just get shoved in a, in a, you know, virtual folder. But these, I mean, I, there's one woman who I know. She, I mean, she just works with big data, and I mean, we need that. 
Yeah, yeah, because then you can see the bigger trends. Uh, and, and also, I mean, in terms of that, uh, my, my little group in Brussels, we've just joined SEN Senelec, which is the, the European version of the International Standards Organization. Mm -hmm. They've just set up a working group on blockchain. And so we've joined that, okay? Oh, because that's great. In, in terms of setting up standards. Uh, so, you know, we're, because again, because of de dealing with big data, I mean, I, I go back to these 3.5 million homes or buildings. Yeah. Once we have data for, the, someone's got to be able to handle all of that. Yes, right? yeah. And it's all got to get broken down, right? Yeah. And, and who's in charge of what? And so there's a lot more. Technology, so you're not buying a coal-fired power plant to power the servers. No, in fact, it's interesting. When we had the first the launch meeting on, on the blockchain, it was a group in Switzerland that's taking the lead, some academics. taking They're, they're going to be organizing all of the future meetings. And they just wanted to deal with the grid, energy grid, and renewables. And we said, no, no, you've got to be dealing with energy efficiency. I mean, yes. look at when you've got 3.5 million buildings or when you've got this or you've got you – we're – uh, but think about that. All that money goes into essentially generation. That's a sexy topic, hydrogen or solar, right? And it's always energy efficiency, which is actually the most money saved or, you know, for the, or the money spent and the, the largest return on it is an energy efficiency, not producing more energy. Exactly. Oh, that's that's my statement. I want to I want to kind of bring this around, and I actually want to talk about your energy and demand website. Okay. Uh, I know we mentioned it before, but but this is a fantastic website with quote, <laughs> quote of the week, and you got stories that you're posting all the time on there. I want to I want to ask you why did you start it, and then what's the what what's the kind of ongoing feedback or how how do you see this as a means of communicating your own interest well, in it's energy? Interesting. It, from 1990 to 2000, I had energy and demand as a paper version that came out quarterly. Okay, okay paper. And I tried to sell it for a thousand euros a year, and uh -huh. even libraries like the International Energy Agency were buying it. I was getting quite a few, you know. And what 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 I was doing it for was to take news from Europe and send it around the world, whether it was Japan or the US, to let them know what was going on in Europe. Then I found out more and more people in Europe wanted to know what was going on in Europe. Oh, right. You know, uh -huh. Because there was the, the level of communication, even inside, was quite poor. So anyway, in 2000, my wife had a job in the World Bank in Washington, and I thought, I can't do it from Washington. Okay, I was going back and forth. Yeah. So I just, I just gave it up for a while because I was busy doing other things. So in 2011, I'm working, as I mentioned, half-time for the European Council for Energy Efficient Economy in Brussels and doing other little projects. Well, our, our grant from a, a foundation ended, and so I was basically out of a job very quickly. I was living in Paris and I wanted people to know that I was still involved in the Brussels scene. So I had, a, I have a friend in Canada. He was a marketing professor in the business school at university of British Columbia. And he, but he's a great graphic artist. He designed my website. We, we spent ages mm -hmm. talking about the whole thing. Uh -huh. And then, uh, so I we went live and I, 
I didn't know what I was going to, I was just going to post some things. And then, then all of a sudden I decided, well, I'll have a little Sunday notice that goes out uh, to let people know that I've posted something this week. And so I did it on a Sunday morning. We were trying to figure out which is the best day. And I thought, well, no, I'll do it before I go for my long run on a Sunday morning. Okay. And so then I don't ruin the rest of the day. I mean, yeah. I ruined Saturday because I put the whole thing together on Saturday. <laughs> I but I mean, it has just gone from strength to strength. I mean, it just, and I can remember the first, I had I had set it up in January. And that September or October, I had to go to a big meeting in Brussels for a Renovate Europe campaign or something like that. I walk in the room and all of a sudden I've got 10 people queuing to come and talk to me about energy and demand. You know? so, That's and, so great. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, it keeps me, I mean, I, 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 I now subscribe to several papers and, and I keep up the top of things, but I mean, it's just, it's just fun and it's, uh, it's quite well received. And, and you, yeah, you stay on, the topics because you're reading the news and yeah, then just thinking I about stay, it. I have to stay yeah. disciplined by it. I only miss yeah. one weekend a, a, a year. I mean, even if I'm on holiday, uh -huh. I do it. Okay. Know? So yeah, you stay, I mean, it's just I, I, built, I, I, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, so and, no, it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite good and uh, it's quite well received. And so you know, I, I, okay, Rod. Great. Well, I just want, I wanted to have you on. It was good to catch up. And I just wanted to kind of go over there, both your, your, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to just say you have a lot of experience uh, in, in <laughs> yeah, Europe. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I'm past my due date, but uh, yeah, but, no, but, but you know, the, the crazy thing about it is I figure I've, I've done so much in the energy and climate field over, uh, over the, the decades, you know, I've got three grandchildren, one 15, one 13 and one six. I owe it to them. The kids yeah. keep going, yeah. You know? Yeah, no, and you owe it to your readers. You owe it. You owe it to me. I don't know <laughs> what, if you need a reason. We'll we'll, we'll come up with one. So yeah. you got to keep doing what you're doing and and being so active at EC Triple E too. And well, and also the one thing we didn't mention, I'm president of what's called Energy Efficiency and Industrial Processes, and and and, and it's Brussels based. We have social media. We we have one hundred and forty thousand people following us on social media. We're you know, but but we're 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 following the energy transition. So we're not just industry. We started out in industry, but what we try to do is just keep people talking to each other. You know, I mean, keep stimulating ideas. You know, yes. that's what we're there about. Yes. You know, that's not, why I'm not, I'm doing this. This is. This that's right. right. Not the not stodgy old professors, you know. No. That's why we keep you going, you know. Stuck in academia. That's my <laughs> my worst nightmare. Okay, as much as I love writing in academia. Okay, Rod, I'll I'll leave it there. Thank you so much for for coming on. Thank you. Okay, all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on LinkedIn. 